Well, good morning, Oak Grove. It is an honor and a privilege to get to open the Word of God with you this morning. I just want to take a second and say thank you to everyone who was involved in putting VBS together this week. I know for most of us that grew up in church, that's a time where God planted seeds, whether it was the seed of salvation or that He would be using those things to grow us. And our prayer, right, is that not only would kids be called to Christ, but those who are, because a lot of our students have been, is that they would bear much fruit. And, and activities like that is, is where some of those seeds are planted. So I just want to say thank you. But <clears throat> let's, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time. God, thank you for allowing us to worship through song and through giving. God, now I pray that we would worship in your word. God, I pray that your spirit would illuminate our eyes, that you would speak to our hearts. God, I pray that you would orient our hearts to, to, to be fixated on you, that our affection and our love would be on you, and that we would spend our lives making much of the king. God, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in First Peter. If you want to go ahead and turn there. And we're continuing our series, Living for What Lasts, as I'm trying to turn there. All right. So if you're new, um, what we do is we just walk through books of the Bible where we end this week's, where we're starting next week. And um, so I think we're in, ending on verse five. So next week, we'll just pick right up with verse six. This is our uh, second week in our study. Today's passage is... is um, God, he's going to show us what is the thing that lasts. And the only thing that will last is the kingdom of God, which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And we have been invited to join this kingdom. And once we join the kingdom, we are now citizens of the kingdom. And the king has commanded each and every one in his kingdom to go and advance his kingdom by making disciples. Often we think that the disciple-making activity, the, the great com commission is something just for the missionary, you're just for the preacher. But how is the great commission given in Matthew 28? He commands all of us. He says, all, all, all authority has, has been given to me under heaven and earth. To, to go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. That is the command of the risen Savior to everyone in the kingdom, without exception. And we get to participate in that. And by participation, we get to build His kingdom. Just a way of reminder from the introduction of the book last week, Peter, he's the, the one writing this letter. And these Christians here, they're facing different kind of trials, um, different kind of persecutions from the, the Roman Empire. And this letter, it's a letter about suffering, but it's a letter about suffering with the hope of eternal glory. Verse 1 all Christians, we, we, we have been given a new identity. And this identity is that of the elect exiles. 
we have been called out of the kingdom of the world to serve King Jesus. And this is just a stop on our way to eternal home. We are aliens. We are foreigners in this world. But while we are here, we are to make much of our time where we live, work, and play, that we would use our time, our talents, and our treasures to point people to the king. So what's true? What are we going to see in our text this morning? God is the source of our hope and inheritance. And I made you a nice run-on sentence since verse 3, the sentence runs through verse 9 in the Greek. So here's a run-on sentence for you. So what do we do with that? We are to praise God through suffering because we know in suffering we have a hope and an eternal inheritance. So let's, let's look at verse 3 together and we'll read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. So we're going to take this in just a couple of parts. The first part I want you to see is verse 3, the the blessed Father. I love that Peter, in in verse 3, he doesn't address the elephant in the room. He's not talking about how these elect exiles are living under the evil reign of the Roman Empire and they're being persecuted, they're suffering socially, they're suffering, suffering politically for their belief in King Jesus. Peter's like, hey, we got plenty of time for that. We'll talk about that later. But first, he's led by the Holy Spirit and Peter points them to fix their eyes on God the author, the protector, and the defender of our faith. The answer for suffering and pain is to fix your eyes on God. And it's because when we do this, we see that there's something larger, there's something bigger than this momentary affliction, even though it's bad that we find ourselves in. The word blessed is where we get our uh, word eulogy from. That's what it sounds like if you uh, sound it out in the Greek. But it's the idea of of praising something or someone. It's testifying to something's praiseworthiness. And the entire theme of this paragraph is the praiseworthiness of God the Father in the work of salvation. Remember, uh, last week we we, we looked at this title of uh, Jesus Christ. He says, we're, we're praising God because he's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is, is this word translated to Messiah in the Greek, but it comes from the Hebrew meaning, meaning anointed one. And this anointed one is who we see through the Old Testament. He's going to be this suffering servant. My quiet time this morning, uh, I was reading Ezekiel. We find him to be the, the, the king, the shepherd king, like David. And we also see that he's the one who's going to bring the kingdom of God. That's what this word Christ means. But Peter, he gives them a title here that he didn't give him in, in 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1, and that's the Lord. The word is kuros. And when this word comes up, 
in the New Testament. What, what the authors are doing is you always see uh, Lord Jesus Christ following God the Father or preceding it, and he's showing the equality. He's, he's pointing out deity with God. That's what he's doing. And it's, it's funny that in verse 2, Peter gives us this, this Trinitarian greeting showing how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal, right? But then in verse 3, he re-emphasizes the deity of Jesus. And if this Trinity thing is something you're like, what are you talking about? Last week, we talked at length about it, and I would encourage you to go check that out. Brandon is super awesome, and he uploads the sermons to all sorts of places, to, to Facebook and Apple. What's the Apple one called? Podcasts. There you go. Podcasts and Spotify. And so if you're interested in, in this discussion about the Trinity, I'd encourage you to go listen to last week's message. But in verse, P, uh, verse 3, Peter is saying that God deserves blessing because he's God the Father, and that he's the Father of the God-man, Jesus Christ, the anointed one of Israel. So let's look at verse 3 again, and we'll, we'll notice something else, that he's the cause of our hope. We are to be praising God because of his great mercy. What is mercy? And why is this mercy great? Paul or not Paul, Peter, he's using mercy in this idea of forgiveness. Mercy is simply not getting what you deserve. God's mercy gives us a divine clemency. Peter tells us uh, God's mercy's great. And why is the mercy so great? You need to understand your offense against a holy God is great. The Bible tells us that in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. And that's eternal separation from God in hell. But praise be to God that he is rich in grace and mercy and sent his son to die in our place. You might be thinking, I don't need mercy. You do, because you stand condemned before a holy God. You deserve to go to hell. I deserve to go to hell. None of us want what we deserve from God. We want mercy. God has made it to where you don't have to get what you deserve. Instead, God sent Jesus Christ to take what you deserve, to take the wrath of God, the penalty of sin, and, and bear it on the cross in his body. Because he did that, we don't have to pay the penalty in hell. I love 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God became like us so that we could become like him. In God's mercy, he substituted Jesus Christ, the God-man, for us. He took his wrath, he, Jesus took our wrath on himself. 
And he gives us his righteousness. You need to understand that the righteousness of God is unobtainable by human works. But the work of the divine made righteousness possible for us. And he freely gives it to us by faith. God shows us his kindness. God shows us his compassion. And God gives us forgiveness. God is the source of our hope because he's poured out his great mercy on us. Look now at verse 3 again, and we're going to see that God is the cause of our new birth. Verse 3 says this, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, this is a continuation of this praise. Why are we continuing our praise? Because he's caused us to be born again. God, has ca- he's, God is the cause of our salvation. This is, God, what he does in our salvation is, not only does he turn our hearts to him, but he gives us a new heart. The Holy Spirit, when you believe, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and Before the Holy Spirit comes on you, you can't follow Christ. You can't walk in obedience. But the Holy Spirit comes and gives you a new nature. He turns that heart of stone into a heart of flesh that's able to live and breathe and walk in obedience to Christ. Our new birth is God's Holy Spirit coming to dwell in us. We get to take no credit in our salvation. It's the miraculous work of God. It's like, who parted the Red Sea? Was it Moses or was it God? God Moses couldn't part the Red Sea. Who, who killed the giant? King David, the boy, or God? Who gets that credit? God. It's a miraculous work. How could we take credit? Ephesians 2 paints us as dead men. Can dead men breathe life back into themselves? No. It's the work of God. Taking any credit at all in your salvation would be like you taking credit for your own birth. That's why he's he's painting this here in the passive. Peter uses the same Greek word in, in 1 Peter 1.23. It says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. The emphasis is the Father's seed bringing this spiritual life. The begetting of seed brings our attention to God being the initiator of our spiritual life. We deserve judgment and wrath But God, instead, he bestows life on us and he gives us mercy and he gives us grace. Peter tells us how God's caused us to be born again. Look at it in in verse three. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These people that he's writing to, they were suffering and dying for Jesus. When, when people found out, you, you grew up with these people and you were converted, when they found out that you believed in Jesus, whether you were pagan or Jewish, they just stopped doing business with you. If there, There's no welfare system. If, if they stop doing business with you, what happens to you and your family? You will go hungry 
That's what they're dealing with. And if you date this book a little bit later than what I date it, it's coming anyway very quickly. King Nero, what he was doing to the Christians, he was throwing them to the lions in the Colosseums, dressed up in animal fur. He was throwing them out to the gladiators, and the crowds would cheer as they would be dismembered. That's the evil that these people were enduring. King Nero was famous for his gardens being beautiful, and what he would do is, during the, the height of the persecution, he would douse the Christians with oil and hang them as his lanterns as he would stroll through his garden at night. What do suffering and persecuted people need the most? Hope. They need hope. And we have hope. We have hope in the knowledge that this life isn't all that there is. That in the life to come, God has a kingdom that he's prepared for us. And we don't have to wait to that life to come. Because the, the, the pinnacle of the kingdom is the presence of God. And we get to experience that now. We have a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus was crucified and on the third day he rose again. And why is the resurrection our living hope? Look on the screen at 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, but a man has also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then is coming to all those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he passed, until um, he has put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. The resurrection is our living hope because we know that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. We will both be raised spiritually now when we pass and physically in the last days the resurrection is our living hope because jesus will win we're told so in the bible we're on the winning side in world war ii 15 million soldiers died on both sides we're not even talking about those who were injured just those who died 15 million on the battlefield how many of those men and women were promised that their sacrifice would matter? Not one. How many of these 15 million had a promise of an inheritance for the suffering that they would endure in the war? Not one. How many of us are promised that our sacrifice will matter? Every one of us. Romans tells us that God doesn't waste any of our suffering and he works it all out for our good. 
and for his glory. In death and in suffering, we are given a living hope. Our lives, giving it in pursuit of advancing the kingdom of God by making disciples. We are promised that our lives and our suffering will matter. We're promised a living hope even in death. We're promised an inheritance that cannot be lost, but was obtained by God himself. And look at your text. It's guarded by God himself. Our living hope is God. It's a God who is not distant, but a God who walks with us. And when we go through the forge of suffering, God is there. Our God does not just reign on high in the heavens, but we're told that he takes up residency in our hearts. Where you go, he goes also. We're told that this God who lives inside of us is empowering us to endure all things and to overcome all things, even the hard things that life has to offer, even when the situations don't go our way. But let's look at this inheritance that, that Peter's dangling in front of us in verses four through five, the inheritance of this living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. Peter shows the, the glorious truth of our eternal reward in the resurrection of the dead. First of our inheritance, we, we, we're told five things, and five things I want you to see here. That first, the inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And then he, he repeats the same idea twice, that he keeps it for us and that he's guarding it for us. First, on the inheritance being imperishable. It means not able to be destroyed. The kingdom of heaven will not be overthrown. The kingdom of heaven will not be destroyed. As we live on earth, we know that this earth is not forever. We know that this galaxy is not forever. But we get stuck living like it is. Scientists estimate, so you can, whatever that's good for, but it tells us that our sun is dying. Don't worry, because it's like, four billion years away, but all this is coming to an end. But our heavenly inheritance is eternal. In most of our lives, we're lucky if we hit 100, right? We're all dying. Every moment, we're closer to death. Good pep talk. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> but it's crazy that that's the reality, that we're perishable. Like, this is the, really the only illustration I could think of. Bananas on your counter. Like, we get those things, and they're, like, perfect in the store, then immediately brown. But that's us. We're, we're, we're perishable. The Bible paints us as a picture of, of a vapor that's here today and gone tomorrow. And it's crazy that we would spend our lives living for this world. Think about the most famous people in history like Abraham Lincoln, Napoleon Bonaparte, or, or Julius Caesar. Their lives are pretty much forgotten. Now, you might know some things about them if you're like a historian on the matter, but for most of us, if we know their names, they've just, they're chalked up to uh, pieces of historical trivia. 
We're, we're lucky if our great-grandchildren will even know our names. In the very near history, we're going to be forgotten. You can think about it, and maybe that's kind of a bummer. But if you think deeply about it, it's liberating. Not trying to cling to this life will liberate you to live for Christ. For the purpose that in this short time that we get to call earth home, you know, we've been put here to do good works. We've been put here to add to human flourishing. Think about God. He creates Adam in the garden. The first thing that he mandates Adam do is work. Work is not a curse. The curse is that work would be hard after Adam sinned. But God has put us on this earth to reproduce. He's put us on this earth to add to human flourishing. And we want to act like none of this stuff we do here matters. No, your job matters. Your family matters. But where you are is where you get to bring glory to God. Because God has put at all different areas people. And we are the church scattered when we leave this place. And when we leave this place, not only are we to add the human flourishing, but we're to serve the people around us well to the glory of God. So it matters. But we do all these things with this eternal perspective of advancing God's kingdom in this world, all the while knowing that this present world is passing away. So our, our inheritance uh, in God's kingdom, it's imperishable. Next, we see that it's undefiled. That means it's not polluted. This, this inheritance will never lose its beauty. God gave us this beautiful world, and not long after, we brought sin in. We defiled it, and now there's sin and death and decay. But our future home will not ever be defiled by sin. Our future home will have no death, no sorrow, no sin. And our inheritance is to be in the presence of God Almighty. And not only is, is the place to be pure and undefiled, but we will too. Ephesians paints us like this, that Jesus is going to present himself to uh, present us to himself and we're going to be pure and, and spotless, clothed in white, clothed in his righteousness because he's washed us by the, the water of his word. We're not defiled. The heavens aren't defiled. It's going to be a perfect place. Our inheritance is, is based on God and then next we see it's un, not just undefiled but also unfading. We know the, this, this world is fading away quickly, but God is not. I literally don't know how, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I don't know how you get out of bed in the morning. Like, you're a strong person. Because without Jesus, without God, none of it matters. Life would have no meaning. Death would be this constant fear this, this dark doorway. But there is a God, and because there is a God, I'm here, and life, life has meaning. Death in Christ does not seem like a, a, a dark, looming doorway. 
Instead, don't get me wrong, I grieve my friends and my families who walk through it, but I got a joy knowing that they're with God. I look at that doorway for myself expectantly because I know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the presence of God is our goal. Now, don't get me wrong, like, I've got anxiety thinking about my wife and my daughter being left behind me. But if we put it in perspective, God's providing for them, I'm not. And God loves them more than I'll ever love them. So I can rest in knowing they will be taken care of by a God who cares. And when we see the the world like this, we can say, as Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Our inheritance is unfading. God is the source of our inheritance. And God is the source of this kingdom. And being in the presence of God is the gift of heaven. God is eternal and all-powerful, and his glory will never fade. And because his glory will never fade, your inheritance will never fade. Then look at verse 4. It says that it says that it's to be kept in heaven for you. Ephesians tells us that we've been adopted by God and that we are now co-heirs to the kingdom as sons and daughters to the king. We, paint, we, we want to talk about this as like, oh, I'm just going to heaven. I'm just going to be the sweet street sweeper. I don't, I don't care as long as I get... That's great that that's your attitude, but you're going there to reign with God. You will reign over angels. You will judge angels. This thing that we're called to is so much more glorious than we could ever expect or imagine. God created this this whole plan, and he set it in motion so that we could be with him in his presence. I don't understand why, but he delights in us, and he wants us to delight in him. He wants to be the center of our affections, and in heaven, this will be fully realized. Remember, Paul started off, or Paul, Peter started off in verse three, blessing God. Why? Because he's given us a new hope, because he's, a, because he's given us a new life, because he's a living hope through the resurrection, because he's given us an, inherit, an inheritance that's imperishable, unfading, and undefiled. And then it's being kept for us, but not just that, it's being guarded by God himself. Karl Marx, he called Christianity, Christianity, religion, the opium of the the masses. He believed that Christianity was created as an illusion of happiness to keep people moral and to keep them out of politics and his specifically progressive agenda. Well, here's the thing about opiate. Opioids, they mask and hide the pain. It helps the body ignore the pain and, and the symptoms. It's not Christianity offering opioids. It's, it's the world. What they're doing is, what the world does is it masks the pain in the soul. 
It masks the pain that you're feeling inside with distractions like hobbies and politics and medication and cell phones and television and all these things in and of themselves are fine. But whenever you're distracted from the reality that's around you, that you use those things to escape, it's that opioid. It's all distractions designed to draw you away from actually living in the moment for Jesus. Christianity isn't an opioid. Christianity causes people to see the world as it is. It's the only worldview that looks suffering directly in the face and gives hope and not distractions. The Bible gives people an answer for pain, an answer for suffering. The Bible tells us where we can find hope for a troubled soul. And the Bible tells us how all things are going to end. The Bible doesn't tell us if you suffer. Some, some false preachers, they want to tell you that, that, that suffering once you believe in Jesus isn't for you anymore. That's not how the Bible talks about it. It's not if you suffer, it's when you suffer. This is how you respond. This is what you're to fix your eyes on. That ancient foe, that evil dragon, Satan, he is playing for keeps. And his greatest tool in his toolbox is, to, is distractions. It's keeping your eyes fixed on anything else but Jesus. It's keeping your eyes fixed on the cell phone or the situation around you. Do you understand the implications of a distracted Christian? What is God's mechanism for advancing his kingdom? What is God's mechanism for breaking through the darkness? The church. You are the church. And a distracted church is just comforting lost people to hell. A distracted church is ignoring them as they march to their own destruction. It's time that we live for what lasts. And we have to choose daily not to live distracted or spiritually intoxicated by the things that we find in this world, but instead fix our eyes on the kingdom. And we get to be a part of the solution, not the problem. Let's look at verse five again. And we'll see it's being guarded. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This word guarded can also be translated as shielded or protected. The picture that we're given is like a garrison is what this is painting. That all those who are in Christ, he, he puts in the garrison and he's protecting them with his power from the fiery arrows of the enemy. The only one who finds this protection of God are those who enter in by the gates. And the gate is Jesus Christ by faith alone. And he says that nothing will separate you from, from his love. Look at Romans 8.23 or 8.35 on the screen. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, 
We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. The suffering and the sorrow and the pain in this life, we sometimes chalk that up to being separated from God, but that's simply just not the case. Now, sometimes maybe it's, it's some sort of uh, chastisement, but we live in a fallen world. And even in chastisement, that's God's pursuit of you. The, the word salvation is so often talked about as salvation from wrath to come, and don't get me wrong, that's, that is salvation. But that's so short of the gospel message presented in the Bible. We are not saved from hell. We are saved to heaven. We are saved to a relationship with God. We are saved to rule and reign with him forever. We are saved to be treated as sons and daughters of the most high God. We are saved so that we can be in his presence forever and ever and ever, amen. And that kingdom to come, we can experience it now because that same God that dwells on that throne in heaven that we will be surrounding and worshiping dwells in our heart. And this is what's being shielded. We're not the ones who preserve the promise of God. We're not the ones who preserve our salvation. We come to Christ. We come to God through faith. God does the rest and we get to have rest. Think about that all God's done. God made the plan for salvation. God sent the son who died on the cross so that we could obtain salvation. God sends the spirit to illuminate our eyes to his salvation story. Then he does a miraculous work of putting his spirit inside of us and giving us a new life so that we can live for him. And once we're saved and changed by God's Holy Spirit, God is the one who maintains our salvation. It's not us. All the while, he's preparing and protecting our eternal inheritance. All we add to our salvation is the sin necessary to be saved from. It's all about God. We come to God by faith alone. And what is being revealed in the last days is the fullness of that glorious inheritance. That's what it's talking about in our passage. And God, he's inviting us to this inheritance and once you say yes, once you're a citizen, then you're commanded to invite others. I'm going to read this, this text as we, we close, and I just want you to close your eyes and imagine this, this, this moment in Revelation. As millions and millions and millions of people stand around the throne, praising the glorious Lamb. Revelation 7, 9 with your mind's eye, see it. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in ro white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and they were crying with a loud voice. Do you see it? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Similar 
painting is, is given to us a couple chapters earlier. And at the cry of the worshipers, the foundations trembled. They shook under his feet. Hear the roar. Feel it shake. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen, let it be so. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be giving to God forever and ever, amen. And this is the moment that should motivate us. That we get to stand there among the crowd and praise but it should also motivate us to live with those kingdom lenses now. Because we get to participate in adding to that moment. Because as long as we are silent about our faith, people are lost and dying and going to hell. This is what compels us. We see the reality, we know how it ends. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I would just want you to know, he says today is the day of salvation. If you want to know how it is that you can enter into this relationship by faith, I'm going to be right here. I would love to have that conversation with you. But maybe somebody in here, your heart's pricked, and you're like, yeah, I need, to, I need to start participating in this kingdom work. Where do I start? Well, who's your one's a great place. Who's your one is, it's just investing in one person, praying for them. Um, if you got some questions about it, there's a, there's a display out in the lobby. Me and Brandon would love to explain that to you. Anybody in the church can. It's just inviting one person, praying for one person. But maybe you're like, I've been a believer long enough that I should be sharing my faith. I don't feel confident. Where do I start? Well, our community groups are going to relaunch in September after that training. And every group will go through a, an evangelism training. And I'd, I'd love to invite you to one of those groups. Brandon can help get you plugged in there. Or maybe it's like, you know what? I, I know how to share my faith. I know, I've been a believer long enough. I, I should be. What is this discipleship thing? Look, we want to make discipleship some sort of knowledge transfer. Like, you got to know everything I know. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is walk like I walk. Invite someone into your life and show them how you worship Jesus daily. Show them the things you do know in the Bible and encourage them to do that with someone else. Let's pray together.